Welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast. This is actually one of our Fizzy Chat episodes. So a little bit different in these episodes. We don't do a play. We just have a wonderful conversation with um, some fabulous women, always, uh, well, usually working in theatre. And uh, that's what we're going to do today. So today we have the wonderful Tamara von Verthan, who I'm going to introduce properly in a minute. We also have Anna Marsland. And we have the absolute powerhouse, uh, Morgan Lloyd Malcolm. So we're absolutely thrilled to have everyone chatting here today um i'll just do quick little bios because everyone's been so kind enough to send them to me so uh, i'll start with tamara as she's one of our fizzies uh, so tamara von verthen is a german british writer published with nick hern books and harper collins her screenplay i don't want to set the world on fire won best screenplay at liftoff season awards 2019 And on stage, her work has been performed at the Royal Court, the Arcola Theatre, the Pleasance, Edinburgh, the Space and Southwark Playhouse. Her play, The White Bike, um, which is actually how I met Tamara, was directed by Lily McLeish at the Space in London. And she's currently developing her latest play, Puddles, with director Anna Marsland for an ace-supported production at Shoreditch Town Hall. Hello, Tamara. Hello. Nice to meet you. Okay, and uh, and Morgan, um, I mean, I feel like people uh, listening to this will almost certainly know Morgan, um, but I'm, let's introduce her properly anyway. Uh, so Morgan is a British playwright and screenwriter whose play Amelia won three Olivia Awards um, at, and had runs at the Globe Theatre and Vaudeville Theatre in the West End. More recently, her play Typical Girls was produced by Clean Break and Sheffield Theatres at the Crucible Theatre. And her play Mum was produced at at Plymouth Drum and Soho Theatre by Francesca Moody. Her next play, When the Long Trick's Over, will be touring the east of England in January and February 2022 with High Tide and started at the Wolseley Theatre in Ipswich. And she also has three films and one television miniseries in the pipeline and an as yet unannounced Christmas show for December 2022. So that sounds amazing. Uh, Hi, Morgan. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, absolute pleasure. <laughs> and um, and Anna, uh, just to quickly introduce Anna, Anna Marsden is an associate director on the National Theatre's The Curious Instant of The Dog in the Nighttime. She directed The Strange Undoing of Prudentia Hart at the Newvik Theatre and has worked as an assistant director at the RSC, Royal Exchange, Newvik and Theatre Royal Bath. And she is currently developing Tamara's play Puddles at Shoreditch Town Hall. Um, which is fantastic. Hello, Anna. Hello. Hello. Um, so just to explain how this is all working, a little peek behind the, the curtain, as it were. Um, so we're recording mostly separately. I'm recording on my own, Malcolm's on her own, but then Tamara and Anna are together. So if it sounds a bit odd, that is, that's why, but it should sound absolutely fine. Mm. Um, so yeah, oh, sorry, and I'm Josephine Starr. I don't think I've even introduced myself. Hello, I'm um, one of the Fizzy Sherbet hosts and I'm an actor and a writer. Um, so yeah, uh, let's kick off with our the question that we ask everyone, um, Anna and um, Morgan, uh, is, a, is a bit of a weird one, but we start the episodes by asking people about um, a favourite or memorable childhood suite because um, we're called Fizzy Sherbet mm. and uh, at the readings we used to give out Fizzy Sherbet and the early days of Fizzy Sherbet as a readings night. Um, so I'll maybe start with, um, I'll start with Morgan. Um, do you have a kind of childhood sweet memory of any kind? I mean, sh- I mean, Sherbet is, is, is in there. Like the, the dip dab ones were yeah, the yeah. ones that I, they were, they were the ultimate because I used to live around the corner from a corner shop that used to sell and we, you know, you take your pocket money around and you go in and we weren't, we weren't allowed sugar really. And oh, so they yeah. were a proper treat to get one of the, it was like a whole tube of sugar, yes. like chuck it down your throat. It was brilliant. Was that with the, the licorice stick? Yeah, with the licorice stick. Oh, yeah. Oh. I loved those. They, yeah, were they dip dabs or were the dip dabs the ones? With I, the think, I think they're called Sherbet Fountain. Okay, thank you. A sherbet fountain would be my... Yeah, which I never understood because I was like, where's the fountain element? <laughs> well, the, the fountain, I'll tell you what the fountain is, is when you put it in your mouth, it all goes poof out, out oh, of your no. mouth. So, and you almost kind of like, it goes out your nose. It's like, it's a proper intensive sherbet. 
<laughs> sort of waterboarding in, in sherbet style, basically. Well, I mean, that should have been their advertising uh, all along. <laughs> um, but... Um, Wow. Okay. I mean, I've learned something already. Um, and, and Anna, what's your childhood sweet memory? I, I'm remembering those little, um, they were like chocolate buttons, white chocolate buttons with loads of little hundreds and thousands on them. Oh yeah. Are they? I really liked, I can't, I don't know what they're called. They're called, they're okay. So I know that, so they're called, uh, frazzles, I think. Or possibly jazzies. I know that this is one of those Australian because I'm I'm Australian and I live. In I think jazzies. I think jazzies. Yeah, yeah. I know it's one of those ones where it's like it's different abroad. But yes, yeah, so jazzies is a is a bacon flavored. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. That can't be right. <laughs> okay, well, amazing. Thanks so much. And Tamara, we've had, we've heard your sweet memory before, but maybe do you have another one you want to share? I don't know. Well, like I could share like a quick seasonal one. I feel like I'm betraying my roots because it's different from what what I said before, but. Um, at the moment, I'm just crazily rediscovering my German roots and doing a lot of Christmas baking and the ultimate Christmas biscuit, which I tried to serve to Anna and then it was completely gone because my family <laughs> had had it all, is a vanilla kipfer. And they are really lovely sort of moon shaped um, biscuits with almond and they're sort of and vanilla and they're rolled in sugar and they're just wonderful. And I'm going to make another batch after after this interview, I think. You have, I have to have them in the house. I have had some of uh, tomorrow's other baking now, which was also very, very good. <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't have zoomed in. We should have done this in person. <laughs> um, brilliant. Okay, thanks so much, guys. Um, so I thought I'm going to mix my questions up a little bit, actually, because I'm looking at them and I'm actually thinking the better place to start is... Um, because we're all coming, so we've got a writer and director, and we also have a director. I thought we'd talk about relationship, I think, um, that relationship between writer and director first. Um, and so I know for you, Morgan, you um, prioritise working with mostly female teams, is that right? Or kind yeah. of sometimes all female teams. Yeah. Um, so it'd be great to hear a bit more about that and also just about how you go about finding and then working with directors on your work oh it's um hmm, that's a really good question about fight because often you sort of you're matched up with people by the ad or yeah. or the produ producer so it, it's sort of um it really does depend on, and i've just been really lucky to be matched up with these amazing women who you know so I, I didn't know Nicole Charles who directed Amelia I didn't know her before Amelia we um we'd never met and Michelle Terry matched us up and we I remember we had a little cup of tea in the Young Vic uh, cafe where she sort of we sort of looked at each other and went are we gonna do this this is this is you know because we only had a nine months to put the show together and it was kind of um this this uh a huge like undertaking and we both were kind of pretty uh, like uh, you know Nicole had assisted at the Globe but she'd never directed a main house place play there and I hadn't written for the Globe ever so yeah. I remember that relationship sort of forming in that moment of us sort of looking at each other and going okay <laughs> here we go and and from then on it was like yeah it was just we're doing this together it was a really collaborative process and because we didn't really have time to sort of sit around languishing in the idea of it we just had to get on with it so um that that as a relationship was was and still is and you know we're working on something together again and it, it's it's so I think it's so important particularly in new writing and I think there's a bit there's a wider conversation that has to happen in, and, and I, I feel like the directors union need to have this conversation about about how directors work in new writing because they are often there from, from very early on in the process and they're often inputting so much in terms of um you know the direction that piece goes the ideas that are, that go into a piece and obviously the playwright will write it but so much of what goes in there has been informed by the ideas and the the vibe and the 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 what the director's vision is that I feel like 
they are not properly recognized for that that's you know i know that's quite a controversial thing to say as a writer because i know that the, the writers union have worked very hard to get what writers get in terms of fees and royalties and all that sort of thing but i think the directors union and we shouldn't we shouldn't give that up but i feel like the directors union should be working hard to make sure directors get properly recognized for the work they do in new writing because i think so much of my work it really has depended on the director and the wider team in terms of how it's particularly yeah. Amelia I mean that was such a that was such a group effort just because of the time we did you know we had and um it's yeah I've gone on on a massive tangent to be honest but it, it like I feel I feel like it's something that I want directors to be properly recognized and, and really directors are paid so little mm. for for what they do in terms of you know the fees that you get as a director is supposed to cover all the auditions and all the design meetings and all that you know all these extra things and then beyond yeah. that once the show's up they're not getting royalties which I think is mm. it's kind of amazing really and I, I um yeah that's I'm just gonna a massive rant in in support that's of directors because I think they're amazing <laughs> no that's really fast I, did, I didn't know that about the royalties actually I actually hadn't really considered it because obviously as a writer you sort of think of that as a writer's thing but you're but it is a group effort and yeah. actually because I've had this conversation with um, a sound designer friend as well, and lots, and actually, that idea of um, the dramaturgy, the dramaturgy that actually lots of people in the mm -hmm. team are kind of contributing mm -hmm. to the director, but also the sound, the set, the actors, mm -hmm. the idea of a play being built. Um, yeah. It really isn't just coming from the page. Yeah, yeah. With it, new writing especially. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Anna and uh, um, Tamara? What about, what would you like to say about that relationship? <laughs> I, I think Morgan has a really valid point. I mean, Anna and I have been working from the beginning, sort of from conception of the piece um, together on it. And um, I mean, how long have we been working on this now? The, the pandemic sort of hit us a little bit and, yeah. and delayed things, but not really because we used the time quite well. But I think for at least two years we've yeah. been we've been working, mm -hmm. and um, yes, yeah, so it, it does feel and and it's it's the same with other directors I've worked with. So there's always a huge collaborative process going on that that reaches back really far, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I agree. Yeah, but it's really, I think it's really exciting to and really rich to work in this sort of long expansive way like I feel like we've been on such a journey with the ideas particularly for this piece um tomorrow and I first met when we were working on a different short play um and then um yeah how much things have kind of developed over that time and changed like from that first idea there's so many things that are absolutely the same from that <laughs> initial conversation that we had but then for, form wise mm. it's gone on a real huge journey and it's really exciting and a lot of that has been really exciting in the writing as well because those inputs you wouldn't think in that way as a writer I mean mm. for for the the journey of the play which is about two women who are um both in love with the same man and this love triangle is sort of then we had the idea to tell it to split the audience in two and have each um part of the audience follow a different side of the story so they they physically follow these women through the space and um and the stories sort of um sometimes are told in the same room and then there's different mm -hmm. scenes where they're not in the same room so the audience splits and that idea has just blown my mind and really yeah, made me so excited about the audience and who they're going to be on the side. You know, that's really, I love that. Yeah. So it's also about, exactly, it's also about how women's stories are told and how they are received by the audience. Um, but also just sort of kind of that gossipy sort of taking sides, you know, if there's like a, a juicy story happening and then you just take a side of mm. someone in it. And, and you just listen to the story from that perspective. And then, yeah, we just envisage lots of interesting conversations in the bar afterwards between different audience members who had a different take on it. Yeah. That's right. That's a great yeah. idea. Talking about audience, actually, that's, um, I wanted to talk to you both about that because I feel like 
obviously with this particular play, Samara, for you, you've done something really deliberate with the audience in terms of what you're sh what you're showing them. Um, but I also feel, because I've, I've worked on your work, Tamara, and I've seen a lot of your work, Morgan, and I feel like in some ways there's a similarity between the two of you, for me as, a, as, a, as an audience member, um, in terms of feel, um, feeling like the writer um, has a sort of call to arms behind the work. Um, there's, so I remember when I saw Amelia, um, and I saw it at the board of us, I saw the West End kind of iteration of it. And um, and it's an amazing it's an amazing play following kind of um, this woman who may have been you know the the brain behind uh, Shakespeare's work. I, I hope I'm describing that correctly <laughs> in some way. Um, she's she's the dark lady, isn't she? Of the, yeah, she's she's yeah. potentially one of the best contenders for being the the so-called dark lady of the sonnets and yeah she was, she was a a writer in her own right and um the the, the frustrate i mean the whole thrust of it is the fact that she's kind of only known about and remembered because of her potential relationship with shakespeare or to or to shakespeare um when actually she was she was a, a writer and it's like you know it's that why do we why do we not know about these people you know no absolutely and there's even that 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 poem isn't there Shakespeare's sister so I mean that mm -hmm. that thing of you know these unnamed anonymous yeah. you know anonymous was a woman that sort mm -hmm. of thing um yeah so but I was just so at the end of Amelia there is this incredibly rousing monologue which I think is probably the most rousing monologue I've ever seen in terms specifically of of audience reaction I have never seen an audience kind of brought to its feet by a monologue in that way um this this kind you know listen to every woman believe every woman I'm, I'm feeling quite emotional even talking about it right now um <laughs> and it's um so I just wondered and and for both of you do you before you write something have an idea of your of your audience in mind and who it is particularly that you want to talk to and how you want to talk to them um or is that something that kind of comes about later on in the process I mean yeah I I, I I'm always I think that's the thing with theatre is that it's because it's live. You 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 always have an audience, and whether that's one person or a thousand people, it, you, you're talking to actual real life people. And I'm every t whenever I'm writing, I'm imagining the journey I'm taking the audience on, and I'm thinking about how they might be feeling in this moment. I'm feeling, you know, I'm if I've made them particularly sad, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to try and cheer them up now because they've had a tough time in that last scene, or you know, mm -hmm. so I'm. I'm I'm always trying to gauge how I might be taking uh, what what kind of journey I'm taking the audience on. I mean, you can never prescribe that. Like, you don't know how people are going to react to your work. Um, you, you you never know how which bits people will connect with or not connect with at all. Like, you know that there there's only so much you can do. You can just you you, you write what you need to write and you and what feels like the kind of thing that you want to say. But I think. In particular, with with Amelia, um, I mean, I was right. Uh, we, we we made that such a sort of specific time in history. Really, it was yeah. you know we were making it when Me Too was happening, and and I was so aware of all these really brave women who were having to speak out and, and talk about their traumas, and we sort of felt a responsibility to be really brave as well and say and say some some things that that we all knew, like most most of us knew those things but they we felt okay we've, we've been we've been given this amazing big stage which had historical significance in the sense that it was literally called Shakespeare's Globe and we're talking about a woman who's been erased by and well you know in the shadow of him for so long it was like it felt like a real gift to do that and so we were so aware of that that we had to be really brave in what we were saying and just say these things out loud and and I felt I feel like it kind of hit at a time when a lot of us needed to hear that being said on a stage in a big way out loud and um and and that's why I think that's why that monologue kind of had to be written and I and I couldn't write it until I was ready like I I wrote several drafts of that play without an ending or like with a sort of weird ending where I'd sort of go and something happens here or and I think it's going to be you know and, and it's because I and similar to how that monologue you can't really do it I mean you can do it and it's on its own it sort of it does sort of work and, and Claire Perkins did an amazing version of it in in the Albert Hall ones like and, and on its own and that was incredible but it you kind of have to earn it it like you have to know her life to get to that point mm. but 
and so I kind of had to earn the right to write it as well so I, I I kind of got several drafts in before I went okay I think I know what this needs to be now mm-hmm. and it all came out and it was pretty much exactly as it <laughs> is now like with a few tweaks yeah um and yeah it's it's you you're always thinking about that because it is it's a live medium mm. in tomorrow's yeah m- so yes I mean <laughs> yeah absolutely I'd, I'd love to hear as well actually if it was how it was different or the same that sort of thinking about the liveness of it with mum but maybe if you think about that for a moment Morgan yeah maybe we'll bounce that to Tomorrow your and Anna as well relationship to audience yes it's really interesting um it also makes me think of the white bike which had quite a strong impact on audiences with lots of people being emotionally affected by it um and with that I was sort of both writing it Sorry. Sorry, just to say, it, it had a similar rallying cry actually mm. built in at the at the end. That's sort of why I, I was thinking of you two together in a way because you really have something to say quite explicitly at the end. Um, yeah. So. Yes, that's right. And we had footage from um, a protest in London, so we had like the the aerial footage of a, um, a protest where everyone was lying down. With, with their bikes on the street pretending that they had died and it was and that actually happened and I was part of that protest as well so it felt quite personal um and it was but it was both sort of the message I wanted to get out there I remember initially thinking to write it for radio so people would listen to it in their cars and to really think where are you listening to it who is listening to it and what kind of where can you nudge change or empathy or just trying to get into a really personal story um, and change something in the way that the audience thinks about it and I I think that that is happening with that play and also in in other productions I've heard feedback where people really practically sort of oh I never knew that the advance box was for cyclists and I shouldn't drive in it things like that where, where you just think oh yeah I mean normally like I don't even question that, but there are people who don't think about it because I don't think from the perspective of, in that case, a cyclist or the woman or, you know, um, so I think that's quite interesting. But but I also feel I'm quite selfish in a way because I write from a really like inside place as, and then just hope it connects with people. So, um, I mean, selfish is an interesting word to use, but... Um, <laughs> I think I think that's a it's a it's a brave and it's an honest place to be as a writer mm. and probably the place the right place to be. Mm. Um, Anna, I wonder for you as a director, when if if you're working with a writer who does have a kind of a clear uh, intent for one thing they want the audience to take away, how do you balance that as a director with? The, the telling of the, the story or the, the handling of of the relationships on stage and that sort of thing yeah I was just thinking about it in relation to what we're working on at the moment and thinking yeah. about what the rallying cry mm. in puddles is yeah, right. and I think it's I think it's about female friendship mm. and I was thinking about the journey of that storytelling with and I think it's interesting about uh, you talking about Amelia and, and that being that um, final monologue and the rallying cry coming at the the end of the play. And I think one thing that's really developed, um, I'm aware of this might be a bit of a spoiler, but well, well wow. I can always cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> is is that the the play now over the journey of the development ends in a sort of gig moment mm. of um, a song coming out of the end of the play Mm. and uh, one of the performers um, having that gig. And the idea is that it is that that moment of female friendship and female friendship and female um, support, empowerment Mm. of one another being um, the thing that you are left with over the romantic entanglement Mm. and um I think that was always really like the seed of the idea when we first discussed it but then it's really interesting how that 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 rallying cry has kind of strengthened and culminated in 
that form mm. and will go on to be developed and we'll see yeah. how that works um as we do the r&d but um yeah i i agree and i think also for me it's very exciting that we're working with a brilliant composer sam hooper on an original score for the for the piece but initially i think i wrote the lyrics for this song because it felt like it's a soul-bearing yeah. instrument. I can put this song in there and it's really from the heart. And it is mm. something how one of the characters processes what is happening within the story and how, well, also it's about love. It's about um, desire. It's about um, grief and, and all these things that are so difficult to communicate mm. in theatre. But in music, we do it all the time. And to then have that as part of the story. So she is actually a singer-songwriter and she is, that's her job. She's actually just using her emotions to make some money, maybe at the end of it in a gig. But but to have that as a as a sort of a, a line through it, it was really helpful. And now it's just wonderful to have that collaboration with, with the creatives. And I mean, we haven't announced the cast yet, but very excited about the cast. <laughs> and um and, and that has become a really big part of, of the storytelling, the, the, the singer-songwriter element of it. And yeah. it's really lovely to kind of have that, um, yeah, to, to add more colours to the, to the palette I'm working with. It's the, uh, yeah, it's interesting where, where the heart of the place is. So it could be a song, it could be that monologue, it could be, yeah. And mm. I think that's um, kind of reframing what you sort of said as being selfish in terms of like that, core it feels like actually in terms of um our collaboration that that rally that that core has been really useful because it's something to always come back to and keep going well, what's this story about are we are we still rooted in that are we still communicating that to an audience and again because we originally the play was um uh, the, all the audience would see the same thing but now that we've um split it into two scripts it was then <laughs> there was a point a few months ago where Tamara and I both sat and read the play from both perspectives checking that we had like oh. the all the information that was needed like whether there were scenes sort yeah. of missing from the particular storyline so again when you've got different perspectives if you can still connect it back to that well is it still about this mm. yeah. that was really useful and they're so interesting as well because we sort of have two character-led scripts now, but they're two different characters. So they're two that they're, they're colored very differently, the stories. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you have a very different atmosphere in the, in those different mm. scripts. Yeah. And so you you really, as an audience member, you will see two different plays yeah. depending where you where you book, which team you book on. <laughs> and so and so Morgan, um, yeah, so I'm just just thinking about mum because it's it's on my mind because it's it's some it's your play that I've seen more recently and it's um it's it's quite different and mm. obviously every you know each play is is so different um but yeah again it would be lovely to hear the I, I suppose that the the journey of that piece and maybe a little mm. bit about kind of because it felt as well with that play that there that it came from a, a, a super super personal place mm. and and also saying something very uh intimate but important about an, an experience um mm. yeah so yeah i mean that it is yeah like you said so, so personal mm -hmm. um and talking about that idea of being selfish <laughs> it, it was kind of a, a way for me to process something really real in my head and i think that um where did it come from? It came from, I was researching something else actually. And uh, as part of my research, I spoke to my uncle who was a, um, he was a consultant pediatrician, he's now retired, but he used to do expert witnesses, um, wit witnessing um, in child abuse cases. Yeah. And, I, and as part of this research, he, he was kind of talking me through different cases. And he told me the story of a case where a woman had uh, had her baby taken away from her and it taken so long for them to get it to the court to decide what to do the baby had become settled with the foster family and so even though it was decided that she wasn't at fault she lost her baby and I remember him telling me this story and it just 
absolutely blowing my head off and becoming part of so I you know like most people um I will have intrusive thoughts and they will they can get when I'm very anxious they can get quite um uh I guess debilitating they kind of they will stop me from sleeping and you know it's that that kind of thing and I found that after I had my first child um they really like kicked off and it became a whole thing that I would imagine the worst possible thing that could ever happen to my child which is a terrible thing to do to yourself um but a lot of people do it it's a form of OCD actually it's like you know um it's it's just a it's just a repetitive thing that can go on and on and so many people have it and I kind of I started really obsessing with this idea that and you know and the stuff he was telling me about how when you you go into a hospital with your child, if you take your baby in or your child into hospital, there's always somebody who on that shift will be in charge of making sure that any child that comes in should, um, whether or not that injury or illness is something they should be paying attention to. Um, and they, and just, and I remember taking my baby, my second child into hospital having, basically I dropped her when I when my first child my son had appeared next to me um choking on a cherry pip so I I'd grabbed him to thwack his back to get the cherry pip out but completely in my panic forgotten that I had my the baby in my hands and so she'd been dropped on her head I mean luckily I was kneeling down I wasn't <laughs> um and 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 you know it was one of those Sophie's choice moments like who do you save it was a <laughs> so awful yeah. and so in in a bit of a kind of like panic about because she had a bang on her head she was fine she cried after and everything but I thought okay I need to take her in just to get her checked out yeah. and, I, and I and I remember sort of when in doing that remember remembering what my uncle was saying about how they're going to be watching you somebody will come in and I remember somebody did come in I was being talked to by the nurse and then a sort of a, a doctory type person came in and just stood watching me and it was the most paranoid I've ever felt about anything in my whole in my whole life. And it, it, it just fed these fears. And so this play kind of came from that mm. sense of anxiety about about all the horrible, terrible things that could ever happen to your child, which is like the worst possible thing you could ever think of. But also um, everything that that suddenly gets magnified when you have a child about yourself about your upbringing about the way that you want to mother the way that you do mother <laughs> um and 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 all of these kind of pressures that you put on yourself and and how in particular those first few months after having a baby are super intense and for the for, for the most part we don't necessarily talk about it enough and so in terms of the selfishness of it I was working through a lot of stuff of my of my own um but also in terms of the saying the things that need to be said out loud in that way that we did with Amelia in that way that you've done with Whiteback it kind of sometimes I think we just need to hear these things said out loud for us to be able to process them and I know that for my part writing it was one stage of that then seeing it being performed like the first run through we did was I, I found very hard to watch in fact I, I found it very hard to watch generally but by the end of the run I could watch it without getting upset and it, it's it feels like there was something in writing that play for me selfishly that was a cathartic process but I hope I was also hoping that it would also be a cathartic process to watch for people who perhaps have those same feelings and anxieties and maybe have had that experience of being completely out of control of what you're doing when you have a baby yeah. so yeah it was it was all of those things really <laughs> do you feel I'm just interested because I'm just thinking is there a link at all just you describing uh, that sense as, as a young as a young mother of of just feel you know knowing that oh there's there's going to be a doctor and they're going to you know they're going to be looking out for this for this baby and um mm -hmm. and it was it was a quality that I, uh, I, I guess my question is, do you, do you ever feel as, as a writer, but as a, as a female writer, um, a bit more watched and observed yeah. than a male writer? And I say, and I, this is a question for you as well, Tamara, because there's a line that really stood out in your play, Puddles to Me, which is, um, I think it was, 
oh yeah, we, we have to stop talking about fucking men. And I was thinking, like, that's a really interesting line because on the one hand, it's like these <laughs> characters, but it's also, it felt to me um, a bit meta as well because it's mm-hmm. a, like almost the self-consciousness, and I could be completely reading into this, but almost the self-consciousness of, of, a, of a female writer being like, I'm aware that this is a play with two women talking about men and I don't mm-hmm. want it to be, you know, like, so... Um, so yeah, I mean, just just that sense of feeling observed. Do you think that comes into your experience as, as a writer, Morgan first? Uh, uh, I mean, yes, yeah. I think yeah. not to touch on it too long, but you just have to look at the 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 breadth of the reviews we got for Mom. Yeah. Um, and I do think that there is a different level of scrutiny, and I do think that there is um, a essentially it's we've been shown and um the same kind of stories for so long and we as women we as uh, like anybody who's from a marginalized community have become very good at watching things that are not their experience not their lived experience but yet, and yet empathizing with that and finding something in it that they can relate to mm. and i think that there's a certain section of society who who aren't used to that and so when they are shown something that isn't their lived experience, they don't see themselves in it and therefore they don't think it is worthy of their attention. And so that's the kind of that's the kind of scrutiny and backlash that we get and so many marginalized communities get um, because we're considered niche or other or, um, you know, not not universal. And I think we we have to shift into a, a mode where everybody starts going oh no hang on you know a, a mother's story is a universal story <laughs> you know we we all have mothers even if we're not mothers you know we've all had an experience in that in that sense so it it's that it's that i think brings a level of like of um we don't want it we don't want that level of scrutiny and we don't want to be constantly justifying ourselves and saying oh no no no! please listen to us because I think you're going to find something in it that you relate to because we know you'll find something in it to relate to and and I I think it's kind of maybe a failing of marketing or a failing of whatever that that we we're sort of expected to sort of justify the fact that okay it's called like for example it's a play called mum it's not just for mums like it's it's there's something in there that that's is such a big disconnect that yeah it's gonna take a while to get over that but I, I yeah I, I think that there is a level of um it's really interesting that isn't it because I'm working on a show at the moment where the, the the theme is the kind of the politics around childcare, but particularly like the, the workers in those spaces and um and quite rightly like we're having conversations about like community engagement and engaging people that work you know in in childcare or you know in, in that but it's it's really I found it really interesting where it's been we're putting a lot of uh, really a lot of focus into being like well how can we engage the people with a direct experience of this place like actually like they're good you know if, if we can get them to come they're going to relate to this anyway like maybe we don't need extra workshops for them like you know like yeah. for them you know it's, it's yeah. really much but like it, it's it's this idea that um yeah that things get kind of really kind of ta- like cornered and pincered and it's like who can enjoy this mm. um, particularly I feel with plays written by, by women or as you say other marginalized groups being like well it's written by a black person so mm. it'll have a black audience mm. and it's written by a woman so we're expecting you know all female audience um mm. and that's a that's a marketing trap I think as well like you say yeah. yeah. Mm. I I find it quite interesting as well um I like to think of and it's probably not the right term, but like the hidden experiences of being a woman that men don't necessarily share. And I think, I can't remember exactly where it was now, which is terrible, but um, I saw on TV recently, saw someone remove a moon cup in a toilet. And I just loved it so much because I was thinking that's the thing that half the population sees and the other half don't normally but if you have it on tv and a lot of people a mixed audience sees it it normalizes something that is sort of behind closed doors and i i remember ages ago i was at the royal court young writers group and i wrote um a version of salome and i remember there was there was 
a tampon in it and you know blood and and all this and it was really shocking at the time <laughs> and it I feel like we are we are making some progress that that those stories are being brought out more or that it's it feels you can write about those things and it might even be put on somewhere mm-hmm. um which maybe uh, you know 10 years ago 20 years ago you couldn't mm-hmm. um so I find that that is quite heartening but yes I, I mean like I also feel like like you Morgan that I I tend to work with um female teams and female directors because I feel I don't know it's just like I don't know if I do it consciously, but it feels those are the people who get my work most because it is very much centered on the female experience. And it is quite difficult maybe to to just get that deep level of understanding and not having to explain Mm -hmm. with with your collaborator, collaborator, (laughs) collaborator. (laughs) um yeah I don't know how you feel about um working on I'm talking to Anna now I'm looking at her (laughs) working working on on sort of texts that have these um I suppose I I mean it's just because I was so struck by that line in your in your play tomorrow like we have to start talking about fucking men like I suppose I guess I have a self-consciousness sometimes about what material is going to be read as, um, uh, I, I mean, girly's not the word I'm looking for, but I guess that kind of like the, the, the sort of like desire to be taken seriously and how that actually aligns with um, making oneself uh neutral but that actually means masculine whatever that means and just like there's this kind of constant conversation in my head anyway as 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 a writer about um which I you know which I silence but I think about um I guess a sort of embarrassment may or a kind of preemptive embarrassment about something being read as um small maybe yes yeah but, but I feel really strongly that the reaction needs to be to take these small things and push them right in the center and make them big and sort of, you know, not force people, but, but present them to people so that they can be looked at and taken at their own value. And, and yeah, why, they, why they decide that they aren't big, like, you know, so many of the things that women have to go through are epic, like childbirth is epic. Like the fact that we, have periods is fucking epic with bleeding everywhere you know it's these things are sort of like have been decided that they're not big occurrences mm. because they happen all the time like maybe it's just because it's so like the concept of these things happening to us all the time mm. is just too much like it's too much so let's just ignore them and push them away rather than you know and let's focus on bar fights and wars and whatever mm. it is that's interesting to those kinds of narratives but yeah, it is. It's all it's it's epic stories, and I, I find the idea that you can't that the if you don't see something um, in if you don't see yourself in something means that you can't empathize. It's just ridiculous. It just do, it doesn't make sense to me because we've literally been doing it for years uh, with stories that aren't our lived experience, and that and I I kind of you know you using the example of mum, I had so many men come out of that who either said well that's not my experience but I now want to call my sister or I now want to call my best friend and you know I I need to call my mum and and have a conversation or they've said I felt like that like my brother my brother went in he's got a two-year-old and he came out he was he was kind of broken by it because he he recognized those feelings those feelings of being out of control of of you know, not knowing what to do with a baby, not knowing how to stop them crying, you know, all of these frustrating, he's like, I, I totally felt every moment of that. And yeah, I think what's frustrating is at the point of trying to say, come and see my play, or please read this story or whatever, if it is remotely, you know, uh, I don't know, girly, as we're saying, Mm -hmm. you know, 
it, it, it just puts people off and you go no no please don't get put off by that please come and because I yeah. really think you're going to find something in it that you relate to or that you recognize or helps you empathize or or understand a person's experience in a way that you maybe haven't considered like mm. that's the frustration I think mm. and I think it, that that worry I think changes as as the subject matter as the women in those stories age as well because it sort of feels like it goes from being girly and inconsequential to sort of drab boring older women who gives yeah. you know who cares like it's yeah it's, and it's so unfair uh, I yeah. think. anyway sorry it's also um, a reduction of those experiences to mm. a single universal experience yeah whereas of course different people relate yes. in all sorts of different ways to to those experiences um yeah. and I think that's why the more stories that we share and tell the more different perspectives we can have on some of those things particularly to do with body particularly mm. to do with things about yeah periods things to do with childbirth reproduction yes. um the the variety of perspectives um, if they grow, then we understand that it's not just a, a single universal experience. Do you know what, Anna, that's a really, because that's the other thing is that there's an anxiety, I think, that, that we get when we're writing a play, that when we write something like this, that is really specific, that we're then going to get, it's going to get misrepresented as the the yeah. play about motherhood or the play about, you know, it, it and like I know just from the breadth of friends and, and experiences, my experience is obviously like not rare but it's not everybody's experience and so I had friends who went to see and were like well look you know that's not my experience of motherhood I had a lovely time I had a brilliant you know you know but I really really recognize what you were saying about um mums and the way that we pass things down you know so it's that it's that thing of going okay just because we've written a play about motherhood doesn't mean we're going this is the definitive experience of motherhood and it's because we've never had the chance to have a million plays about motherhood and mm-hmm. like there are a million plays about a, a man you know be, yeah, yeah killing somebody or a man <laughs> losing his wife and yes. killing everybody uh, or a man you know losing his country and killing everybody you know it, we've not had all those different versions of things so um I'd love, I want, I want a million plays about motherhood, basically, yeah, you know? <laughs> or a million plays about periods or a million yeah. plays, you know, whatever. But it's not even like, they're not even about, it's like, it's like, it's containing it. Like this story yeah. has this, that's part of this story, but it's not a kind of educational video about. Exactly. You know, yeah. I don't want to have to educate people on things. Yeah. I just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I wrote a birth in, into the white bike. Um, which wasn't about motherhood. I mean, it was about motherhood in a way, but it wasn't centrally about that. It was in there um, in the way that it is in It, life. it yeah. needs to go into all sorts of plays, the, the experiences, and to be normalised, to, to have them talked about. I think that's really important. I was listening to an interesting discussion on, on the radio this morning about miscarriage and um, bereavement um, leave from work. And for that, the, there was the question, why couldn't that be introduced, not just for, for mothers, but also for fathers? Um, and I thought that was a really good thought as well. Like, like you say about your brother's experience of seeing the play, and we always forget to talk about the men um, yeah. and, their, and their experience of what we call mothering as well. I mean, I've, I, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really... Um, I, I could like not yeah. I could not do what I'm doing if I didn't have my husband doing a lot of the mm. the parenting or the the mothering you know he, he but also that whole situation is predicated on the kind of like essential belief that that like it's the child is the mother's the mother like the mother's whole responsibility mm. and so the grief will be the mother like will be all mm. the mothers yeah and yeah it's obviously not true but it's but it's a it's it's sexist yeah. but it's sexist towards women as well yeah, yeah. Mm. anyway sorry so um <laughs> different question um <laughs> i actually wanted to talk about 
Um, just the idea of secrets, because um, it's something that obviously uh, comes up in your play puddles a lot, like, you know, the, the secret. And I know we've talked about kind of, um, you know, like, like kind of not secret female experiences, but kind of experience, but um, experiences that, w- that women maybe understand a bit more intimately between themselves. But I was just interested how, um, I don't know, if you feel there is a relationship for you, um, for all of you, between kind of holding something as a secret and developing something as an idea because I think for me there is I was thinking about this idea of of feeling sort like my attachment to an idea as it's when it's very very new feels almost like having a having a secret and I don't know I was wondering if 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 that (laughs) kind of hit with any of you (laughs) Tamara Do I look secretive? (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about my secrets. Um, Yes, I think there's sort of like a little, um, there's there's time that I need to spend on my own Mm. with ideas and I can't share um, too much too early on. So I kind of have like this, I'm sort of brewing things (laughs) inside me and then they come out and then there will be a time for sharing and there will be a time for shaping. But I think the, the, the first sort of creative impulse is, is sort of happening somewhere really deep inside. And then it, it, it sort of has to, I, I have to do a lot of, I, I cycle a lot um, or, or run or something like, and, and, and in those times I can feel it sort of churning away inside and then, and then it sort of comes out um, and I can't, I mean, the worst thing is if people ask you at parties, like, what, what are you working on? And then you, you feel like you should, you should share it and you might not be ready at that point. And then you just have to guard it as a secret. So you can't talk about that one. You can talk about one that you've already done. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same. It's a kind of weird state that you get into where I hate showing things too soon. I hate showing things too early. Um, I find it's so exposing because it's like it's like you're a little bit naked and you haven't got yourself fully dressed yet and you just don't you just don't want them to see it like that because you know the work that you're still to do and the the, the thinking that you're still to do that hasn't quite been done that you know you know where you're headed but you don't want to show it till you get there because also you want to protect it because people's people have suggestions and opinions and thoughts and sometimes they're really useful and they open things up in your head in a useful way but sometimes actually they're kind of they're kind of not so yeah I'm same as you tomorrow I need to be ready to share and re- in that space where I'm ready to welcome in new thoughts about it and new angles and 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 be challenged a little bit on stuff that isn't quite working but yeah there's a very delicate sort of soft like textural thing where you're just like please leave me alone until I'm ready to say it I don't I don't know when you haven't fully formed it you also just don't want to say it out loud because you know that if you do it might kill it because it won't sound right it's yeah yeah amazing I also want to ask a question just because I think any writers listening will find it useful or helpful I think um because I know that both of you um have uh, quite kind of clear advice for writers about um, ha- how to give yourself time to write. As I think it's a conversation that we've had, Tamara, um, it's actually specifically in the context of you saying kind of actually when you became a mother, you felt like you sort of became a more productive writer because you had to order your time. Mm. And I was just, because um, I think writing can be really opaque. Like when people are like, I want to be a writer, but I have no idea what that like, what is the life of a writer like when when does the writing happen and and obviously it can be so different for everyone but for you guys how and when does the writing happen (laughs) (laughs) oh god it's such a hard one I I do sort of like um when I'm talking to writers because I've had to I've had to really grapple with what my process is because I've never had a process and I think that that's because we're kind of sold that processes are very serious things that you must stick to every day and and particularly when you're a parent it's so hard to do that like you just can't that you get you know things just happen like your kid's ill or you lose your childcare or you, you haven't got childcare like how you do it's just it's just impossible to be the sort of writer that 
gets up at 6am and does two hours and then has an, a coffee and then goes for a walk and then does another three hours and then has lunch. And, you're, you're like, and I remember read, you know, I, I remember reading a, an account of a, a very successful television writer whose process literally was that, you know, six up at six, go to a cafe, read the newspaper, think about my idea, then have lunch, have breakfast. And, you know, and, and it carried on all the way to sort of five or six o'clock in the evening. And all I remember doing is reading that and going, who's, putting the who's dropping the kids at school <laughs> who's sorting out like who, 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 who's you know who's doing the shopping who's who's cleaned the house while you like I just remember thinking you've got help you've got a lot of help um you've got somebody looking you've got money kids. as well you've got like, money and you've got help and it's just not possible so I tend to sort of I tend to say okay process process can be anything um like my process I'm a terrible procrastinator so I spent years fighting against that and thinking I was a terrible writer and therefore I shouldn't be a writer because I obviously can't sit down and write um, and and do it like consistently. And so when I when I went, okay, hang on a minute, procrastinating is my process. <laughs> that totally freed me up because I was like, okay, if procrastinating is what I do, then I have to make time for that. I have to leave time for that. I also have to try and make it a little bit productive sometimes. So if I'm procrastinating, I try and procrastinate well, like whether that means watching a show that's vaguely related to what I'm writing about or going for a walk instead of like staring at the wall and just these little things that slightly help me. And also just accepting that if I, I, I always get the work done, it's just a bit of a panic at the end of the at the end of the process. So if I have done the prep work for it so that I'm ready, so that I've done all the reading I need to do, or I've, you know, drawn all the pictures I need to draw or made all the playlists I need to make, all these extra little things that I do instead of writing, if I've done all that, so I've cleared the decks, I can then sit down and just fucking bash it out. Like, mm -hmm. and and I do it. And if that's how I write, that's how I write. Just because you don't sit and methodically do two pages yeah. every day or whatever it is, that doesn't mean your process is any worse than than somebody who does. So work out, I always say, work out what you, what you need to do your best work, mm. what time of the day that is, what kind of food you need in the house, what your space feels like, you know, all these like things that don't, we don't really think about and and then try and work that around your real your actual life your real life whether that's a day job whether that's a part-time job whether that's kids you know whatever that is and be really realistic about your time and it might just take longer than you think it's going to take and that's okay actually that's that's okay and there is no one way to write at all there really isn't you can read all the books and some books are really useful some books really aren't and just read the ones that feel like you connect to with your own process and and honor it honor that process so I'm like yes I'm a procrastinator so I shall make my procrastinating excellent yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it. and how about for you guys Anna and Tamara I I mean having listened to that I think I do a lot less actual writing than I think I do <laughs> because a lot of the process is talking and developing and um having Zoom meetings and yeah. having coffee. And I mean, I have, when I had my children, this, this is sort of a structural thing that was really helpful for me. Um, so my husband and I both decided to reduce our working hours so that we both went back to four days in the office. And we each had one day with the kids when they were little. And then we both just kept that because we just thought this is really nice and now that's at nursery and now they're at school and suddenly like as they get older you get bigger pockets of time and they occupy themselves more and because you've had that time where you didn't have any time really mm. it's so precious and I feel because of that I can do a lot of writing mm. in the the three hours maybe that I have on a Friday because I've booked that in for the week and the rest of the week is the is the procrastinating. I just fill it with other things, with work and kids, and and yeah. and you know, I I never work in the evenings. We always sit on the sofa watch something. But then again, I I'm really that's research for me as well because you know if you watch good drama, brilliant. You know, you get a lot of sort of osmosis. Uh, you know about good writing, and and we have so many great great writers who, who write now for TV. So that's such a luxury. I, I, I grew up in Germany and TV was so rubbish. I mean, it was so bad. And I feel like 
I'm really appreciating what you can what you can watch now. And and I think, yes, I mean, I think just having a little bit of time for yourself and if you want to write, write when you can um, and when it's right for you. That is that is what I would say. I, I used to have a diary for a long, long, long time. I haven't really been keeping it. I think a lot of that energy is now going into actual projects and, and writing. But um, that is a really good way to start. Also, just then you will always have them in the back and, and something you can revisit. And for, for any directors who might be listening, Anna, um, obviously quite a different thing. But, um, you know, I mean, you are a director. How, how, how do you go about your, your kind of daily life and, and, and feel like a director every day, even if you're not necessarily directing on that day? Yeah. I think um, I'm a really big fan of the artist's way. Mm. Um, and two things that I try and I can't say that I am as dedicated as I might be but uh two things from that that I really try if I'm feeling like I need to like restock my creativity a little bit or or keep that um uh yeah keep that creativity flowing um is uh doing free writing morning pages and just kind of um getting my head on a page and getting ideas just out and then the other thing is artist dates and kind of dedicating time in a similar way to Morgan said about sort of using your time constructively in a way of like I'll make a playlist or I'll I'll draw or I'll put some stickers on this page or I'll baking is one of mine as well. Like I'll I'll do something that feels artistic and creative, even if it's not related to a specific project. Um, and just know that I'm yeah, feeling that well, exercising that muscle. Um, and that makes me feel more creative as a learning stuff makes me feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah creative yeah because it's such a holistic practice isn't it directing like you're you're an artist and you're having to draw on on all sorts of art so and yeah you never know what's going to be useful yes like, <laughs> um but also I think it's also realizing what type of process you think is important or what kind of things you want to prioritize like I I'm much better, much happier in person collaborating with people in a room. Um, and I find that much more uh, productive than me sitting, um, trying to do something just on my own. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. Okay, we might do a last um, question, if that's all right, um, which is we, we like to ask everyone, um, what women inspire them in uh, I mean usually women in the arts but it doesn't have to be um yeah so maybe we'll start with Tamara as you sort of know the question um um I really I'm hugely inspired by the playwright Alice Birch I think she's fantastic um but I kind of feel that there are so many um women sort of in my direct environment as well, who I find inspiring. So I, I really, I'm inspired by Anna Marsland. I, it's great working with her. I, I'm inspired by Lily McLeish, who mm. I work with a lot. Um, and I feel, I mean, also my mum, I'm really inspired by my mum because she, um, she's in a really male profession. She's a carpenter and she was working all through um, us growing up and I feel like she's given me permission to be a working mother and to make time for my own craft and to take that seriously while also having children and that it doesn't diminish me being a mother and I think that's yeah that's my small list small but exclusive <laughs> It's always, I mean, it's always a kind of slightly strange collage, isn't it? Of like these, these faces. Um, but yeah, okay. How about um, Anna, for you? Um, 
I feel like I'm going to limit myself to one field, <laughs> which is I'm thinking about the word, the words of women that I'm turning to at the moment for inspiration. And I think I'm turning to the words of Mary Oliver and Sylvia Plath and Jeanette Winterson. And those three writers are, um, yeah, really inspiring me at the moment. Are you reading them at the moment or you're kind of reading them? They're, so um, I'm dipping into quite um, a bit of uh, poetry and yeah, just just sort of um, nice to just have a little dip into, especially when you're busy, just like quite like a poem for that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's contained, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Great. And how about you, Morgan? Well, I mean, I've got a similar answer to Tamara in that all the women that are around me that inspire me all the time and my amazing mum and sister and everybody. But so I, I think rather than being wishy-washy and say, all oh, the women in my life, um, I'll choose one. And it's always the person that I'm collaborating with um, at that time. And I've been very lucky to have been working with some incredible women recently. But I'm currently working with Chin and Yerim Adimba, who is directing When the Long Takes Over, who is not only an incredible director, she's an amazing playwright and a, a really, really important activist at the moment in theatre. And she inspires me all the time just with her incredible strength and vision and um, and she's going to do a really great job. I'm really excited about it <laughs> with, the, with the play. So yeah, yeah, I would say Chino is is mine right now. Gorgeous. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. It's been a really lovely chat. And um, yeah, hopefully see your, all your work soon. <laughs>